Well, how about that? If I sound a little smug this morning, it's because we've got great news to share. So buckle up and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. As many of our listeners will know, the Crime Writers of Canada, of which I'm a proud member and former treasurer, held its Gala Arthur Ellis Awards Banquet for Excellence in Crime Writing on Thursday of last week. Our little book that could, Thirteen Claws, an anthology of crime stories by the Maydams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing 2017, scooped up four nominations, count them, four. And the results are in. The winner for the Arthur Ellis Best Short Story of 2018 is The Outlier by Catherine Astolfo. If you'd like to hear the story, then tune into our March 18th, 2018, episode 12, where I interview Kathy and read her story on our Readers on the Run segment. Congratulations to Catherine Astolfo, author of such fabulous books as Victim, Seventh Fire, Sweet Caroline, and Legacy, to name only a few. Let's break open the bubbly, plug into a funky tune, and celebrate on today's episode of Dead to Rights. Today we're delighted to bring you an interview with the renowned host of the popular show Conversations Live, Mr. Cyrus Webb. Cyrus is used to asking the questions, but he was a terrific sport and he let me pick his brain on a number of topics. Also, coming up on June 3rd, we'll talk with the author of Pieces of Me, Lisbeth Meredith. On June 10th, we'll bring you the hit author of the Knights Templar series, Michael Jacks, all the way from the UK. On June 17th, we'll chat with mystery author Jennifer Berg. And on June 24th, we'll be back in Canada with Canadian crime writer Dee Wilson. So we have all that coming up. For today's Readers on the Run segment, I'll share my story from 13 by the Maydams of Mayhem titled Watermelon Weekend. In keeping with our celebration of crime genre awards, this story was also nominated for an Arthur Ellis Award in 2014. What happens when a single mother of four young boys decides to take another chance on love? I hope you'll enjoy this creepy tale of trust and betrayal. But first, I have to tell you about this terrific new book I've been listening to on Audible. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's called The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels by John Meacham. And it's read by Fred Saunders. A truly wonderful historical view of leaders past and present, and it's fitting for our times. If you love Audible and are always looking for your next great listen, I highly recommend it. On last week's episode, I reviewed The Bootlegger's Goddaughter, a hysterical crime caper by Canada's queen of comedy, Melody Campbell. I hope you all rushed out and purchased your copy and are still laughing out loud at the antics of Gina Gallo and her crew. But I forgot to mention last week that this novella has been shortlisted for the 2018 Ontario Library Association Golden Oak Award. Just so you know, I'm not the only one who recommends this book. Well done, Melody Campbell. And now I bring you my own dark story, Watermelon Weekend, which first appeared in 13 by the Maydams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing, 2013. Warning, this story involves children and the abuse of innocence. If you're a sensitive reader or listener, you may want to fast forward over some parts or go straight to our interview with Cyrus Webb. I've tried my best to treat the subject with delicacy, but it's an issue that is close to my heart and one my stories return to with some regularity. So I hope you'll stay with me and listen to Watermelon Weekend. My mother believed in the irrepressible power of love. Some might have called her a romantic, but that wasn't the case. When it came to distinguishing between love and romance, she could not have cited the definitions. She wasn't able to manipulate semantics in that way. But she knew the meaning of the word. I was the eldest of four boys raised by Elizabeth Bessie Fender. I appeared on the scene when she was 19. At four months pregnant, she married my father, John Fender, for whom I was named. 
Dad finished high school and enlisted in the armed forces to provide for us. Eighteen months later, he was dead. The only mementos I have are a pair of pictures on my nightstand. There's one of him with my mother, laughing on my grandfather's porch, and another where he's in full uniform, about to ship to Cyprus. Oh, and the story of how he died. That's mine as well, though I usually keep it to myself. There's nothing noble in the concept of friendly fire. When his Canadian peacekeeping unit was hit that day, he wasn't the only casualty. A couple of civvies went down, but they aren't listed by name in the letter Mom received. That's another story, and not one I like to dwell on. I never knew Dad, but I have to give him credit. According to my mother, he was handsome and brave, and like her, he believed in love. Because I had no father, Grandpa did his best to step into the role. He taught me to fish and how to fix things. He wasn't a violent man. I don't believe I ever saw him angry. Not really. Still, he took the time to talk to me about self-defense in the way I imagined my own father would have if he'd lived. I don't go for weapons, he said. If your enemy is bigger and stronger than you are, he's going to take your knife and use it against you. If you must fight with a weapon, don't let go of it no matter what. Consider it an extension of your hand, and don't hesitate to use it. I nodded, as if I understood. And Johnny, he added, never forget, it's always best to walk away from a fight. A real man doesn't have to prove himself. In my childish mind, I knew he was wrong. A man did have to prove himself. If you find yourself in a situation where you have to fight, for God's sake, fight hard. If you knock a man down, make sure he stays down. Have you ever been in a fight, Grandpa? I asked. Once or twice, son. He smiled, pointing at the kitchen cupboard. Go get me a Phillips screwdriver, he said. That hinge is loose. I know your mother. She'll be nagging us if she sees it. It was Friday morning more than twenty years ago when I was twelve going on thirteen. I could hear my eight-year-old brother, Nicky, crashing around in the bathroom. He was supposed to be brushing his teeth, but it sounded more like he was dismantling the plumbing. The twins, David and Dale, were five. They were good boys, self-sufficient, although they liked to follow Nicky around at times to his annoyance. David was the quiet one content to be in a room with his family. Dale was more talkative, interested in what was going on around him. Nicky, for the most part, was a sullen child. He didn't cause trouble, but I guess you could say he had a chip on his shoulder. He liked to be left alone. The only person he really related to was our mother. That Friday morning more than twenty years ago, we were packing for a weekend at the cottage. Grandpa owned a place up in Muskoka. Mom had a key and standing invitation to take us there any time she liked. We spent many weekends at Grandpa's cottage. In the old days, he used to come with us, doing all the things a father would do. He taught us to play baseball, hauling out his pride and joy, a collectible 1938 Louisville slugger. His father had bought him when he first joined Little League. He used to kid us, saying we had to be this tall before he'd let us hold the bat. He always relented, to our delight. That's what grandpas are for. By the time I was twelve, grandpa wasn't well any more, and he didn't come up too often. He still liked to know we were using the place, though. Mom had recently started dating Phil, a thirty-something salesman who was employed by a drug manufacturing company. No one at the pharmacy where she worked knew they were seeing each other. She'd told us about Phil earlier that week, but warned us not to say a word to Grandpa, at least until she was sure it would work out. Even though Mom was a knockout at 31, a single mother of four boys doesn't get many romantic offers, so she was excited to be dating again. It was our first weekend together with Phil. He seemed like a nice enough guy. I could tell Mom was hoping it would get serious. Remember, she confided, let's not put any pressure on the relationship. It's our secret for now. Don't mention it to Grandpa or anyone. I nodded. I was glad to see Mom happy. 
Not so, my brother Nicky. He'd been in a foul mood all week. Come on, I said, tapping on the bathroom door. I need him there. The twins are already in the van. Nicky didn't answer. A moment later, the door opened and he came out, deliberately bumping into me. I tended to make allowances for my half-brother. According to Grandpa, who seldom had a hard word for anyone, Nicky's father was a no-good womanizing bum gambler. Steve did time for petty theft and carjacking. His brief marriage to my mother had ended badly. A few years later, she met Braden, a handsome musician. He was a nice fellow who paid attention to me and Nicky, which most guys wouldn't do. When the ultrasound revealed Mom was carrying his twins, Braden screwed off. We have no idea where he went. We haven't seen him since. I think the twins have it worse than Nicky does. At least Nicky's father didn't disappear. It must really suck to be so low on the totem pole. Mom said the responsibility was too much for Braden. I have my own opinion. There are men who face their duties, men like my father and grandpa, and there are those who don't. It's as simple as that. I seldom think of Braden. When I do, I admit it's with a certain measure of disdain. Get your stuff, I said. Tell Mom I'll be right there. Nicky grabbed his bag and stomped down the stairs. So that's how we ended up in Mom's minivan on a sunny Friday morning in July. Two adults, four boys, and one big hairy dog, our golden retriever, Fanny. Nicky's mood lifted once we were on our way. He and I played Mario on our Game Boys. Dale fell asleep, and David worked on a word search. Where do you want to shop? Phil asked. We were in Barrie with still a long way to go. There's a Sobeys up ahead, Mom said. Do you boys want anything in particular? Watermelon, Nicky said, smiling at the thought. Yes, watermelon, I agreed. Watermelon it is, Phil said. David clapped his hands. Phil grinned at us in the rearview mirror. I wasn't sure why Mom had let him drive. After all, it was our car, and Mom was a good driver. But he seemed to know his way around, at least so far. Do you boys want to come into the store, Mom said. No, we'll be all right here, I said. Okay, keep an eye on your brothers. If the car gets too hot, open a door. I'll stay with the boys, Phil said. As soon as Mom went into the store, Phil pushed his seat back and closed his eyes. It could be a tedious drive if you weren't used to it. Mom was in the store about a half an hour. When she returned, Nicky let out a low whistle. Holy crap, I said. Mom had gone all out. The buggy was piled high with food. Nicky and I helped load the groceries into the van. At the bottom of the buggy were three big green watermelons. I should mention, Grandpa's cottage has a dock where he kept his boat tied up. The water there is deep and not too full of reeds. That's where we learned to swim, doing cannonball jumps into the cold lake on a hot day. Some of my best memories involve munching on watermelon, with my legs dangling over the edge of that dock. So yes, we were happy to see the watermelon. I caught Nicky's eye. He was smiling for a change. David fell asleep north of Barry. I lost interest in playing with the Game Boys. I'd recently been teaching myself to play chess, so I challenged Nicky to a duel. He was a better sport than I was, losing without complaint. Before we knew it, we could see Go Home Lake. Within twenty minutes, we'd be at the cottage. What could be more thrilling for a boy than arriving at a crystalline lake with hours of sunlight still ahead and nothing to do but run, swim, and play? We hurried to change into our trunks and headed for the dock. Keep an eye on your brothers, Mum said. I will. Dale has trouble climbing out of the water. I know. I'll bring down some watermelon in half an hour. Hooray, the twins shouted. That evening, Mom surprised us with a rare treat, six huge steaks on the barbecue. We ate till our stomachs were distended, baked potatoes, sour cream, and corn on the cob. Anyone want more watermelon, Phil asked. Without waiting for an answer, he went to fetch a large bowl from the fridge. Nicky and I groaned at the sight of the juicy red melon. 
Still, we couldn't help ourselves. You boys will be awake peeing all night long, Mom laughed, reaching for a piece. Let's hope not, Phil winked at Mom. She giggled. I bit into another piece of melon. Nicky and I washed the dishes while Mom and Phil set up the DVD player. It wasn't easy finding movies we all liked. Nicky and I would watch just about anything, but the twins got frightened easily, especially Dale. Mom finally decided on Mrs. Doubtfire. Be careful with that knife, Mom said. I glanced at Nicky, who was carrying the big carving knife toward the sink. It was slick with watermelon juice. Worried he might hurt himself, I reached for it. He turned the handle toward me, and I dipped the knife into the soapy water, careful not to cut myself. We have a rule in our house. Only Mom and I are allowed to handle the sharp knives. Rather than drying it, Nicky left it standing in the rack. Who wants popcorn? Mom asked. We do, my brothers shouted. It wasn't easy keeping boys fed. Grandpa used to accuse us of having hollow legs. Where'd you put your dinner? He would joke, watching us go back to the stove for seconds. The movie was a lot of laughs. Even Nicky enjoyed it. By comparison with Steve and Braden, Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire looked like some kind of super dad. The northern air was weighing on us, so after the movie, Mom ordered us to brush our teeth and get to bed. Nicky and I shared a room near the kitchen, closest to the bathroom. Fanny usually slept on the floor between our single beds. David and Dale had bunk beds in the middle room. The third small room off the living room, furthest from the kitchen, was Grandpa's. Mom had the master bedroom off the other side of the living room. The cottage had been designed by Grandpa back when Grandma was alive. The big room had belonged to them in those days, but Grandpa seldom came up any more. When he did, he was happy to use the little room. Being the eldest, I sometimes stayed up late watching movies with Mom, but it was obvious she wanted private time with Phil, so I didn't argue. Besides, I was tired, and Nicky's mood was getting dicey. I lay awake, listening to adult chatter in the other room. The sound was alien to me, but not unpleasant. Mom and Phil kept the TV volume low. Nicky was asleep in no time, and I followed not long after, seduced by the honest fatigue of a day spent in the sunshine. I don't know what woke me. Maybe it was some minor twitch of Nicky's. Or maybe Fanny rolled over on the floor. Our dog wasn't much of a talker. When she needed attention, she would give me a look. I don't think I ever heard her whine, and I could count the times she'd barked on one hand. For whatever reason, I found myself suddenly awake, long after everyone else had gone to sleep. Nicky had a tendency to get cranky if he didn't get his ten hours, so I crept silently out of the bed and went to the kitchen to check the time. The clock on the stove said 2.15 a.m. I turned toward the bathroom and, as I did, I heard a whisper coming from the twins' room. I thought I must be imagining it. There was no way either David or Dale would be awake at that hour. I was about to dismiss it when there it was again, the unmistakable sound of a whisper coming from the middle bedroom. David normally slept on the top bunk, being the braver of the two, and Dale was on the bottom. Not sure of what I heard, and not wanting to wake them, I tiptoed to the doorway and peeked inside. The twins had a nightlight, a plastic cartoon image plugged into the outlet near the baseboard. By its light, and, to my shock, I saw Phil stretched out on the bottom bunk beside my little brother. I couldn't see his hands. Dale saw me before Phil did. My brother's eyes were frightened, and there were tears glistening in the faint light. Innocent me. I had no idea what was going on, but it didn't look right. Dale, are you sick? I asked. Phil stood, knocking his head on the top bunk and waking David. Dale was crying, he answered too quickly. I came to check on him. I'll get Mom, I said. No need. Everything's all right now. Dale still hadn't said a word. Was it your stomach, I asked? Dale was sometimes prone to gas, which made him whiny. He shook his head. 
What was it? I insisted. I want to sleep with you and Nicky, he said. Me too, David chimed in. Something wasn't right. I glanced at Phil and was not reassured by what I saw in his eyes. He was wearing a guilty look, the kind Nicky wore when we caught him red-handed eating the last of the cookies. I'll get Mom, I repeated. Phil grabbed my shoulder as I turned. I said there's no need to wake your mother. Everything's all right now. I have a real thing about being touched by strangers. The only man I'd ever admired and felt loved by was my grandpa, and he wasn't the touchy-feely sort. He was more likely to hand me a tool and let me work beside him. That was how we expressed our affection. I shook Phil's hand off, probably with more force than I intended. Hey there, he said. Just wait a minute. Leave me alone, I said. What's going on? I heard my mother's sleepy voice calling from the master bedroom. Is everyone all right? I knew someone would have trouble sleeping after all that watermelon. She approached the twins' bedroom, pulling her robe over her shoulders. Everything's all right, Phil said. I got up to use the bathroom and heard Dale crying. I came to check on him. I want my mommy, Dale said, becoming hysterical at the sound of our mother's voice. There, there, baby. It's all right. Mommy's here now. Stay with me, mommy. Stay with me, David repeated Dale's request, minus the tears. Is your tummy okay? Dale nodded. Do you need to use the bathroom? He shook his head. Do you have a headache? Again, the head shake. I think you've had a nightmare, sweetheart, she said, hugging my brother. You close your eyes and get back to sleep. It wasn't a nightmare, Mommy. It was Phil. He scared me. My stomach tightened. By now, Nicky was awake as well. He turned on the light and stood in the kitchen near the counter, a wary look on his face. Fanny was at his side. Phil was checking on you, dear, Mom said to Dale. There's nothing to be afraid of. He hurt me. I want to sleep with John and Nicky. Mom let go of Dale and stood, her full height falling short of Phil's by nearly a foot. What do you mean, Dale? How did Phil hurt you? He wouldn't leave me alone. Dale began to wail uncontrollably. It was obvious we weren't going to get anything coherent out of him. What did you do? Mom said to Phil, her voice cold in a way I'd never heard before. Oh, for Christ's sake, Bessie, the boy had a bad dream. I was checking on him. You baby them all too much. Mom, I said, reluctant to interfere but unable to remain silent. I saw Phil. He was under the covers with Dale. Dale was crying. What do you mean, under the covers, Mom said. I looked at my feet. My vocabulary would not allow me to elaborate. Go, my mother pointed at the doorway, her eyes fastened on Phil's face. Get your clothes on and get out. Where can I go, Phil said. We only brought your car. You can sleep in the van for tonight. In the morning I'll call you a cab and you can catch a bus in town. This is ridiculous, he shouted. I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know whether you did or you didn't, Mom said but I want you out of my house. Do I need to call the police? I edged closer to the phone. Police, Phil said, stepping toward our mother. Are you threatening me? Fanny barked, only once. It was such an unusual sound I couldn't help but jump. Nicky's shoulders stiffened. He slid closer to the dish rack. He caught my eye and I knew what he was thinking. Silently, I shook my head. I remembered my grandfather saying a weapon is only as good as the person holding it. If your enemy is bigger and stronger, he will likely take it and use it against you. It was always better, according to Grandpa, to simply run. And if you couldn't run, then use your brain. Let's all settle down, I said, in what I hoped was a smooth voice. Come on, Dale. You've had a bad dream. You and David can sleep with me and Nicky tonight. In my mind's eye, I saw the privacy latch my grandfather had attached to our bedroom door. A boy your age needs to be able to lock the door every now and again, he said. I figured once the boys were in our room, we could lock it. If necessary, we could use my cell phone to call the cops. Phil had other plans. Settle down, 
he mimicked. Who the hell do you think you're talking to? He pushed Mom out of the bedroom. She hit her head on the door frame and fell into the living room floor. Fanny leapt forward, placing her body between Phil and our mother. Her efforts won her a kick in the ribs. She yelped, but she did not move. That's enough, I said. Nikki took another step toward the kitchen counter. David scrambled down from the top bunk and ran to our mother. You little shit, Phil snarled in my direction, his congenial mask now long gone. I could kill the lot of you and no one would even know I was here. Dale let out a fresh howl. You hear me? I could start with Dale here, snap him in half with one hand and keep on going till I put every one of you miserable bastards down. Phil reached for Dale, pulling him from the bottom bunk. He dug his fingers into Dale's fragile shoulder and pulled him past our mother into the living room. What's with this brat, he said. Doesn't he ever stop whining? He lifted Dale into the air and shook him, yelling, Shut the fuck up! Dale held his breath, doing his best not to cry. Mom stood up. Please, Phil, she said in her most reasonable mom voice. Let's get some sleep. We're wound up. It's probably the watermelon. You stupid cow, Phil sneered, still holding Dale. You think you're going to call the cops on me? A desperate bitch like you with your sniveling litter? Who else would have you? Nicky's hand moved quickly and quietly, lifting the knife from the dish rack. I don't think Phil noticed. I'm sorry, Phil, Mom said, remaining calm. I didn't mean it. Let's go to bed. We can sort it out in the morning. She pushed David toward me with one hand, and I grabbed him and shoved him behind me into the kitchen. Mom stepped towards Phil and Dale, nudging Fanny out of the way. She had to diffuse the situation before it got any more dangerous. She caught my eye. I knew she was counting on me to take care of the boys, to get them to safety down the road, once she convinced Phil to join her back in bed. Then, as if changing her mind, she suddenly stepped past Phil, heading towards Grandpa's room. "'What are you doing?' Phil shouted. Mom didn't answer. She didn't have to. I knew what she was up to. Grandpa always said a weapon was only as good as the person holding it. He didn't own a gun. He always said a determined criminal could overpower an honest man every time. A lethal weapon like a gun could be taken and used against you. That didn't mean we shouldn't defend ourselves. Nicky stepped past David and stood behind me, holding the large kitchen knife. For a second I thought he meant to pass it to me. After all, I was bigger and stronger. When it came right down to it, though, he was probably tougher than I was. Squaring his shoulders, he prepared for battle. You've got to be kidding, Phil said. He looked at the knife in Nicky's hand. Holding Dale in front of him, he said, I could snap your little brother's neck like a twig. Is that what you want? Nicky, I said, give me the knife. Reluctantly, Nicky stepped back, handing me the weapon. That's more like it, Phil said. Now you boys get on the floor, face down, side by side. Nicky and I stood together, neither of us moving. I could hear David whimpering behind us, but I couldn't take my eyes off Phil long enough to check on him. Nicky saw Mom come out of Grandpa's bedroom. When he realized what she meant to do, I could feel his energy change. She had the advantage of surprise. With Phil focused on Nicky, me, and the knife, she was able to bring up the rear. She moved swiftly, leaving no chance for Phil to react. In her hands was the only weapon Grandpa would allow in his house, the 1938 Louisville Slugger, the very one his father had given him, the same one he used when he taught me and Nicky to play ball on those long sun-filled days at his cottage when he would be the father we never had, laughing and playing until we'd used up the last of his youthful vigor. Phil never saw it coming. One strike and he was out. I ran for Dale, lifting him out of reach of the man we now knew to be a monster. Phil groaned softly, stirring on the floor. Damn, Mom said. I can tie him up, I said. To hell with that. She raised the bat once more, with steady surety, pausing for only an instant before bringing it down with the fatal blow. Spent, she fell onto the couch. I think she was in shock. Her robe hung loosely and she shivered. 
Her face was deadly white. "'Are you all right, Mom?' I asked. Nikki brought a blanket from our room and covered her. I lifted her feet onto the couch. "'I'll be okay,' she said. "'Just give me a moment.' "'We have to get him out of here,' Nikki said, nodding at the bleeding mass that had been Phil. I tried to take control of the situation, assuming my best television persona. "'I'll check his pulse,' I said. "'Don't bother,' Mom said, sitting up. "'He's finished.' I thought she was probably right. His eyes were open, glazed over, staring blindly at the overhead fan. "'Give me the bat,' Nicky said. "'I'll clean it up.' "'Good thinking,' I said. "'I'll get dressed,' Mom said. "'Me too. We can take him down to the dock.' "'We have to take him further than that,' she said. "'We can use Grandpa's boat.' I'll get the plastic tarp from the shed, I said. My grandfather kept a couple of tarps, the kind you can tie to four trees to make an awning. We liked to sit under them when it rained, listening to the drops above our heads, all the while cheating nature by remaining outdoors and dry. There are rubber boots in the basement, Mom said. Bring a pair for both of us. Okay. She headed for the master bedroom to get changed. On my way to the stairs, I peeked into the bathroom. Nicky was doing a good job of cleaning the bat. I'm going to help Mom get rid of him, I said. Nicky nodded. We'll leave Fanny with you and the boys. Can you clean the floor when we're gone? He nodded again. We can't leave any bloodstains on the wood. He knew what I meant. We both watched a lot of television. I'll move the furniture and make sure I get all of it. Good. You'd better throw Mom's nightgown and robe into the washer. Dale and Fanny might need cleaning up, too. We'll try not to be too long. There's a deep spot over near where Mr. Branson likes to fish, Nicky said. No one swims out that way. I know the spot. And John, he said, still scouring the bat, make sure he stays down. I'll make sure. In Grandpa's shed, I found the wheelbarrow, some yellow nylon rope, and a good strong tarp, and a cement block that had been broken in half. I carried the tarp into the house. Nicky helped me roll Phil onto it. The floor under his head was still warm and slick. Then, Nicky and Mom took one end of the tarp, and I took the other, and together we carried him out to the yard. We got both parts of the broken cement block into the tarp with Phil then sealed it firmly with the heavy-duty yellow rope before tipping the wheelbarrow and rolling what was left of Phil into it. In the dark, we couldn't be sure we hadn't allowed any blood to escape, but we had no immediate neighbors. In the morning, I'd come out and water the area, making sure to clean the wheelbarrow. "'Boys, you mind Nicky while we're gone,' Mum said to the twins. "'Don't go into your room till you're clean,' they nodded. I pushed the wheelbarrow down to the dock, Phil was heavy, especially with the added weight of the cement block. That was good thinking, Mom said. Thanks. She helped me get him into Grandpa's boat. I'll row, she said. I was already bigger than she was, but I could tell her nerves were shot, so I didn't argue. Rowing gave her something to do. We didn't talk much, at least not that I recall. When we were about halfway to Branson's fishing spot, she paused in her rowing and looked up at the sky. Nearly a full moon, she said, taking care not to raise her voice. Sound carries easily on the water. I looked to where she was pointing. I think it's supposed to be tomorrow night, I said. Johnny, tell me the truth. Was Phil molesting Dale? I looked away, studying the black water. I think so, I said. Me too. We found the spot, or near enough to it, and taking care not to tip the boat, we managed to roll him up and over the ledge. He made a loud splash. It was over in a second. There aren't many people up that way, and even if anyone was awake, a splashing sound isn't unusual when you live near a lake. Well, that's that, Mum said. He'll stay down, I said. Would you mind rowing back? I'm kind of tired. She traded spots with me and closed her eyes, turning her pale face up to the moonlight. I'd always thought of her as beautiful, and she was only thirty-one, but in that moment I could see the onset of age, 
the roots of tiredness spreading into tiny lines around her eyes. Her blonde hair shone a ghostly silver, and I imagined, this is how she'll look as an old woman. This is how she'll be in those last years before she dies. The thought made me sad. I got us back as quickly as I could. Nicky was a tough bugger, but I knew the twins would be inconsolable, needing their mother. I don't remember the rest of the weekend, really. Mom called Grandpa on Saturday morning, spilling the whole story. He reminded her to go over everything with bleach, and he talked to me and the boys, telling us to stay calm. Don't panic, he said. Cool heads will always prevail. Make sure you get rid of his belongings. We stayed till Sunday night. Mom didn't want to raise suspicion by heading home early. We didn't do much, stayed in the cottage close to Mom. The drive back was long and quiet. We didn't make any stops. We were all different somehow after that night. We went about our business in the usual way, keeping our routines. But a secret like that wears you down. We looked at each other with more knowing eyes. Grandpa died a few years later. I don't know how I would have endured my teens without him, what kind of a man I'd have become without his steady influence. Nicky was, if possible, even more sullen in the years that followed, although he was a big help to Mom and me with the twins. He didn't like to leave them on their own, ever vigilant, I suppose, so he stayed close to home in the evenings, especially after I started dating. Mom reported that a new salesperson from the drug manufacturing company had started calling on the pharmacy where she worked. A chatty young woman by the name of Selina. She and Mom became friends. According to Selina, the previous salesperson, Phil, had up and disappeared one day, leaving the company without notice. When police came around to speak to his co-workers, it was revealed that Phil had a questionable history. He'd been accused on two separate occasions of impropriety towards children. In both cases, the victims and their single mothers had recanted. Charges were dropped. Most likely, he'd been able to silence his previous victims with threats. Phil met the wrong single mother the day he hooked up with Bessie Fender. And now, more than twenty years later, I look out over the gathered congregation. Nicky isn't there. He joined the forces after high school and, like my father, never came back. Dale and David remained bachelors. They have a house not far from Mom's. Today they're sitting on the front pew, together as always, near my wife Samantha and our daughter Bessie. My mother, I began, believed in the irrepressible power of love. My eyes sting. I'm not sure I can finish the eulogy. But I know I must, and so I reached down deep inside myself for the courage to say goodbye to the strongest, most loving person I will ever know. And that has been Watermelon Weekend by yours truly, Donna Carrick, which first appeared in 13 by the Maydams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing 2013. Thank you for listening, and now I'm pleased to bring you our interview with host of Conversations Live, Mr. Cyrus Webb. Good morning, Cyrus. It's Donna Carrick. Welcome to Dead to Rights. Hello, Donna. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you on. You're a coup. Are you kidding? Uh, I, I, the first thing that Alex said when he heard I was going to do this is, you've got to get Cyrus Webb on, on the podcast. And uh, I'm just thrilled that you agreed to do it, Cyrus. Um, I'm going to ask you the first most obvious question. Where are you located? What city are you in? I am located in Brandon, Mississippi. Ah, wonderful. Way down south. How is the weather there today? Right, way down south. <laughs> I'm in Toronto, so that really is south to me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so how's your weather down there today? You know, the weather's really good. Uh, it's going to get up to almost, I think, 65 today, uh, oh. which is typical Mississippi weather during this time of year. <laughs> mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. It sounds yeah, heavenly, yeah. 
Well, we're having some unseasonable weather up here. It's really nice and mild, actually, and the sky is blue. It's really gorgeous. Um, uh, Cyrus, the reason I wanted to have you on is because you've been active in the arts for a long time. I think you date back to 1999, hosting art shows and poetry readings and gatherings of various kinds around the U.S. before building uh, or while building the Conversations brand. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the people you interview? I know that uh, you're a publicist as well for authors. Uh, who are some of the characters that you've come into play with over the last few years or since oh, wow. 1999? You know, I think, you know, part of the, the great thing about doing what I do, Donna, is that it, it does, you know, like I said, me being from Mississippi and living in Mississippi, being able to literally touch the world um, through my work has been an amazing thing for me. I mean, I was introduced, of course, to you. You and I have never met before, you know, of course, and so many other great people. I think one of the big things has been for me to have grown up reading um, certain people or listening to certain people or watching certain people and then end up having them on my show. Like, I mean, one of the biggest examples is Jackie Collins, who I was a big fan of growing up. Mm -hmm. uh, and even though I should not have been reading her books in <laughs> probably in junior high, high school, I was. Uh, and then to be able to not only interview her four times on the radio show, but then to be invited to what would become her final book release party for the San Angelos in New York, and to be able to meet her in person and, and to be able to spend some time with her, that was truly amazing. I think one of the other big ones for me, uh, Donna, has been John Saul, someone else I grew up reading, and then to have him become not only a regular guest, but someone he calls uh, he calls me a friend. And so that, that's been an amazing thing, too. So I think that's kind of been one of the big things for me to have been such a fan of individuals and to have them become fans of my work and to be able to share those conversations with the world. Your love of that artistic community comes through really in everything that you do. Um, Alec and I have been watching your your rise of your work over the, the recent years because we first just started getting really um, involved online in around 2009. So we've been watching you avidly since that point and um, your involvement has grown and your love has remained for the arts and for the artists themselves. And I think that comes through in everything you do. Now, you had a major coup recently. I think you're going to be lined up to speak with Jane Seymour. Is that right? Actually, I just I just had that interview yesterday. Oh. And, I mean, what, what an amazing thing um, to be able to, again, she's someone else, right, who everyone knows Jane Seymour for, yes. for Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, or for some of her other roles she's been able to do. Then, of course, her work with philanthropy that she's involved in with her Open Hearts Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, to get a call that, hey, you know, how would you like to interview Jane Seymour? I mean, who wouldn't want to get a call like that, of right? Of course, of course. That's yeah. exactly right. Um, yeah. yeah. Now, that, that leads me, that actually answers the question I wanted to ask you about uh, the people in the world who who you've been connecting with, who are living their dreams. And um, I know that you were named fairly recently, another big event, you were named one of Brother Magazine's Men of the Year. Um, I think there were nine finalists, is that correct? And uh, yeah, and I think that the mandate is to encourage, to educate, and to inspire. And these are all things that I do connect with what I know about you as well. I appreciate that. You know, that was such an honor. I, you know, it, it's very funny. I, and I think it's because of the way I grew up, Donna. I've never been big on awards or being nominated for things. I never think about those things mm -hmm. because I think when you start doing things for recognition, I think your motive shifts. Um, for myself, I've always just tried to do things that I personally feel good about and that I believe will be a benefit to other people. And again, I have to give my grandmother and my mother credit for instilling that in me to make things less about myself mm -hmm. and, and realizing that that's where the true blessing and joy comes from. So when I found out about the Brother Magazine nomination, I was, for one thing, I was surprised mm -hmm. about that <laughs> because, again, I don't expect it. Uh, but then for them to recognize my work, you know, it's just really is a testament of what I've been trying to build, not only with conversations, but I think with my life as well. Yes, yes, because you're not just about the conversations. It's a, a very right. big part of what you're doing. But you're also a writer. You also uh, do marketing work. I think you help with platform building for writers and uh, inspirational right. motivation for writers and other people in the arts. And um, 
I, I was uh, just diving through a few of your titles. For example, Words I Choose to Live By. I mean, that's just a terrific title. Um, and uh, it, it's true that every day we do make decisions. Every day we get up. And I, I've said to my kids, good and evil, they're things that we can mark and we can recognize and we can know them. But we also have to recognize there's a lot in between good and evil. There are a lot of people who get up every day and are capable of both, but make a decision. And how we live and whether we're going to approach our lives and our art as things that we want to enhance the excellence of, you know, and, and just live in an excellent manner. I, I remember once um, seeing the, well, this is a long time ago, so it, I think it was called In Search of Excellence. And I think it was a, a philosophical film that was put out by Disney many, many, many years ago. I don't want to say how old I am. And that always stayed with me because we may not achieve excellence, but I think we've got to always strive for it. And that's something that struck me in watching your media personality um, grow over the years, that that seems to be something you do, you know? Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I think for myself, and it goes to something I actually just posted online recently, because I, I, I grew up, like a lot of people, kind of believing that in order to quote-unquote make it in certain, you know, fields, you have to live in certain places. Well, I think for one thing, the Internet has destroyed that myth. Oh, yes. Um, because now we're kind of all on the level playing field. But I look at the fact that even though I do travel with my work and I go crisscross across the country, I, I, you know, Mississippi's still home for me, and that's that's become the base. And a lot of the greatest things have happened to me while I have been here in Mississippi that have impacted the work I do across the country. So I really try to let people know that don't don't stress about that. Don't let geography be the thing that keeps mm -hmm. you from mm -hmm. going for the thing that you want to do. Don't let what someone tells you, because quite frankly, as much as my family loves me, they were not very encouraging in the beginning mm -hmm. because they didn't understand. They didn't see how it could work being yeah. where I was. Yeah. And so, you know, I tell people, you know, even people you love, they mean well, but don't allow them to get in your head and to tell you what's not possible for you. You have to truly believe it for yourself. And I think, Donna, that goes back to what I mentioned earlier about motive, because if your motive is not right, mm -hmm. and it's not pure, you will give up on it. Because if you say, well, okay, this didn't happen for me in the first year, it didn't happen for me. And, you know, you mentioned 1999. And, you know, in 1999, I was doing motivational speaking and visiting schools and things, but it would be another five years before I started hosting Conversations Live mm -hmm. after that. So, you know, and, and I tell people, you know, you just never know where your platform will take you, mm -hmm. but you have to start where you are, and I think that's kind of what's been rewarded for me. Yes, yes. There was a song that was a big hit for a while. It was kind of a silly little song, and I was too old already when it came out to really attach to it, but I, I really did attach to it. It was Stand in the Place Where You Live. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Those yes. words always kind of struck me as... Uh, yeah. bearing such a truth you know I don't really know what the song was about it was a pop song at the time but those words always stayed with me um, and, and I agree with you I ask a lot of authors what the awards mean to them for a reason because you know if you're somebody who starts with no platform and suddenly you get some industry recognition that can be such a wonderful motivator but at the same time as you said if you if you are getting up every day trying to work towards recognition that's going to backfire, and it's going to backfire badly. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, too, the other side of it, you know, it, it can't last, Donna. It can't. Yeah. I mean, because, again, I mean, unless you're truly passionate about something, there is, is no way you're going to keep at it. That's right. Because you're not going to get what you want from it. And mm -hmm. I think what has been such a surprise for me is, again, I don't expect any of this. I mean, I didn't know when I started on the radio 15 years ago that I would be getting called, that people would be calling me wanting mm -hmm. to be a part of my show. Mm -hmm. When when I first started, you know, I was on, at the time, once a week in 2003, I was having to go out and find guests. And, and oh, so you were doing stuff. what I'm doing. Because <laughs> yeah, I just exactly. started this podcast in December, and yes, I've been going, I've been doing the rounds, lining people up. Now, response has been great. People have been quite willing, but yes, I've been going out seeking them. So, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, you've got a couple of other titles that I found kind of intriguing. I think maybe they're aimed towards younger readers. Marv's Healthy Choice. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Sure. Now, that was an honor for me to work on. I actually co-wrote and illustrated that book, Donna. It was, um, 
a big Marv, who a lot of people may know, is the cousin of rapper MC Hammer. I've been okay. his publicist now for, for quite some time, and and when he had a health scare and found out that he was a diabetic and had to make some health changes, he wanted to share a message with kids because a lot of his audience from the TV show, Hammer Time, that he was on with MC Hammer, um, a lot of his audience were kids. And mm-hmm. so we got together and we wrote this book called Marv's Healthy Choice about a boy named Marv who didn't always make the best choices and started gaining weight and feeling sluggish and how he was able to change things around. And so that was a lot of fun for me. And, and it also was fun because it was Marv's first book. It was my fourth book by the time we, we wrote that book together. And it was just great to see Marv had something of his own, yes. uh, a book of his own versus being a part of someone else's project. Uh, he now has something. In fact, I, I just hosted him here in Mississippi. Believe it or not, he came all the way from Los Angeles to Mississippi at the end of last year, 2017. Mm-hmm. And we visited schools together and were able to read the book. And, and, and it was an amazing experience. And it's a terrific message. I mean, there's got to be yeah. something really, really good about having a message like that that you can carry. I mean, another title you've got is, I hope I say this name right, Standria's Big Dream. And she's a right, right. yeah, a little girl from a big town, and I believe that's another one that you co-authored. Um, tell me a little bit about that one. Sure, so I wrote that with a, a very good friend of mine named Stanley Clark. He has a, a, a beautiful daughter named Stendria, and and he had told me about an incident that had happened at her school about her people laughing at her about something she wanted to be when she grew up because of her living from in a small town here in Mississippi. And I said to um, you know, we talked about the conversation they had together, and I said, Stan, that would be a great book. I said because people need that reminder because. So the one thing I've realized is that a lot of times, and I think, again, the Internet has helped us with this, we feel as though our own experience is only our experience. We don't realize that there are people in Oklahoma who mm-hmm. are being told that, you know, that their dream is too big for where they live. There are people in Austin, Texas, who have been told the same thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are people in Toronto, Cyrus, who are being told in Toronto that their dreams are too big. And I can tell you, uh, I can honestly tell you that, because uh, we've mentioned geography a couple of times, Mississippi, around the world, Mississippi has got a real mystique. People love right. to hear the place Mississippi and love to, to know about Mississippi. So you may see it as you're in small-town Mississippi, although I think you know better, but the world <laughs> sees it quite differently, you know, and, and you just right. can't, you can't know how the rest of the world views it, you know? For sure, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, that, that is so true. Yeah, and there's something, too, to what you're saying about the universality of these things, too. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's what the book about Stendra really shows is that regardless of where you're from, if you have a dream and you're willing to do the work, anything is possible. And quite frankly, that's my story. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what I shared with Stendra when I actually met her at a book signing. I said, you know, your story is my story and the story of so many other people that it's not about where you're from. It's not mm-hmm. about how others see you. It's how you see yourself and what you're willing to do for what you want. Yes, yes, exactly. And what your vision is, you know. Exactly. I, I think uh, having that vision, because you, you talked earlier about your family didn't necessarily understand the vision of what you were trying to do, but uh, but you understood it, and you were willing to carry it through. Right. And I think, too, and to make the mistakes, and because, you know, I don't want people to think that, you know, my entire career has been perfect. There have been, you know, I've had to learn that you can't work with everyone, that not everyone's going to have the same values as you, and that when you're taking the lead, you have to be willing to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think those are things that scare people at times because it's not easy. You know, I've been in situations where I've had to accept responsibility for things that may not have gone the way I wanted them to mm-hmm. because you're the person up front, and that's yeah. what that's what a leader does. And I think... That's, I think that's part of the reason why, Donna, so many people hesitate with going for their, especially as entrepreneurs or youthpreneurs uh, these days, as they're called, you know, I think, because that's where the buck stops, and you have to be willing to take that and not to, to shuck responsibility, and I think if you can take the ownership of that, mm-hmm. then, then the success is even better for you, because yes. you know what you've had to do to get to where you are. 
Yes, yes, I agree. I agree 100%. And it's very easy to live a perfect life. All you really need to do is I remember a SpongeBob episode where he was afraid of getting hurt. And uh, he just he he had a little song he sang called Indoors, where all he was going to do was become sedentary like his people and just stay indoors. And uh, it's very easy to live a perfect life. But if you want to have an interesting life and an exciting life and a life filled with growth and passion and, and art and uh, friendships, you've got to be willing to make mistakes because you're going to. Right, exactly. There's no way around it. And I think no matter what title you might have, whether it's a, it's a business owner or a parent, you know, or, you know, or a teacher, no matter, you know, no matter what position you have in this world, you're going to make mistakes. I think what really matters is what you do after that. Yes. And, you know, and I think that is the big thing. And that's also what says a lot about your character. Yes, yes, that's very true. How we handle, how we handle the things that go wrong or, you know, and I, I liked what you said, too, about taking ownership as a leader because it's pretty easy to blame. I mean, and it really, it's a cheap shot. It's a cheap shot to blame others. Um, it's almost always a shared responsibility, but when it's not shared, then, hey, it's mine. I got up, I went there. Right. Yeah. So true. Yeah. But anyway, Cyrus, it's been a real thrill talking with you. I, I really enjoy it. Do you have any parting thoughts for writers in particular um, that might help them, in, especially new writers? I think the best thing I could say, Donna, is to don't be afraid to start. I think, again, you know, I, I hear this all the time. Donna, I know you probably hear it as well, that I have this idea, or I've always wanted to write this, or I've, you know, I've scribbled this down. And I, and I tell people, don't, don't die. Don't take your last breath, which none of us know when that's going to be anyway, which is, mm -hmm. should, I mean, that's one thing that inspires me every day to work as hard as I do. Me too. Because yeah, because these days you you could be here today and gone today, mm -hmm. and you don't want to die with those regrets. You don't want to die with those what could have been, those what ifs. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to start. Definitely educate yourself, but don't be afraid to to let your voice be heard because you never know who you might impact. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I really appreciate those thoughts, Cyrus. Thank you very much, and thanks for joining us on Dead to Rights. Can you stay on the line for a moment uh, after I after I stop the recording? A big Dead to Rights thank you goes out to Cyrus Webb, host of Conversations Live, for joining us today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at deadtorightspod. We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick, or at my website, DonnaCarrick.com. Or if you're looking for my husband and better half, Alec Carrick, you'll find him on Twitter at Alex underscore Carrick, or his website, AlexCarrick.com. If you'd like to reach out to us with a question for any of our authors, contact us at CarrickPublishing at Rogers.com and just say in the subject line what your question is. Join us next week when we bring you Lisbeth Meredith, author of the memoir Pieces of Me, The Search for Her Kidnapped Daughters. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, who also brought us the original story scoring music. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.
Let it rock.